Welcome to the Mastering the Mind podcast. Today, we welcome Paul Barry to the podcast. Paul is a professional foundation-based football coach who has over 20 years of experience and has worked at various club academies, such as Southend United and Arsenal Football Club. Paul has also coached in America and for several different organisations in England, including Brazilian soccer schools, for the FA as a skills coach and Dagenham and Redbridge Centre of Excellence programme as a technical skills coach. Paul is also a content creator for Football DNA, as well as a children's picture book author. So let's welcome Paul to the podcast. Hi, lads. Hello. How Hello, are Paul. we? How are you doing? I'm good. How are you both? You well? Yeah, good. Bit, 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 uh, bit tired. I've, I've had a long day of work, but uh, we're here. What's been happening? Oh, man. So I've been, um, obviously at work, I uh, run a gardening company and uh, yeah, I cut 30 lawns today, so it's been a wow. grand. And, uh, that puts me to shame. I cut mine probably once every couple of months. <laughs> it's getting me booked in. Yeah. <laughs> wow, that is some, uh, that is a lot of grass being mowed there. Fair play to you. Indeed, but this is this is why we do it. The best part of the day, you know, recording the podcast, get the work done, and then we can talk uh, football and all the rest of it. Yeah. So how's your day been? Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, out coaching uh, this morning, um, and then. Uh, I had the delight of the school run to get back in time to pick my little one up from school. She had one of her friends over, play date, dinner, okay. all that stuff, and then a big tidy up afterwards. So, yeah, yeah pretty much uh, done it all today. Nice. Is your sort of um, daily schedule um, uh, the same a lot of the time or does it differ uh, on your coaching? How is yeah, it? I, I'm actually sort of um, doing a variety of different coaching roles right now. So I'm coaching in the day. Uh, with some scholars, uh, um, but my friends, um, my friends, the chairman of the of the football club that I'm working at. Yeah. So I'm with them in the day. Um, I then go to do my academy work in the evenings, um, along with my coach education stuff. That I'm trying to deliver one or two of those workshops a month. So that involves a lot of planning and then trying to organise dates to go and deliver those. Um, doing some content creation for some online sort of social media platforms. So some webinars, articles, doing some sort of recorded sessions um, and then trying to squeeze all that in with, with uh, writing some children's stories at the same time. So nice. yeah, Very busy. I, I wear a lot of different hats at the moment. Yeah. Doing yeah. Sort of a variety of different things. It's, uh, it's all good fun. Nah, that's class. Um, something we really want to do with this podcast, um, especially this one is, for any aspiring coaches listening, we've got a lot of young people listening. See, identifying how you've got to into the roles that you've currently have, um, and for them to be able to try and achieve that. So, a great place we like to start, and for listeners to get to know you is talk us through your journey to date. So, from growing up to now, who is Paul Barra? Well, I'm now into my 24th year of coaching, wow. which. Um, it blows my mind a little bit. So 24 years, I, I started coaching in my sort of late teens, done my first qualification um, just before I started university. So I did a, a sports science degree at South Bank University. Um, and what preceded that was my level two. So I was going straight into football coaching, um, then to uni for three years. Had the, um, the good fortune to travel to America not long after that. Um, when I graduated and spent some time coaching the Challenger Sports British Soccer. So I was there in America, in Ohio, Michigan, spent some time in Detroit, had a brilliant time there for a few months in 2001. So it goes way back. And then what followed after that really was a variety of sort of um, community-based coaching, grassroots coaching, did some voluntary work. So of those 24 years, I'd say 
half of those are a grassroots coaching. And some of that um, initially was, was volunteering and just putting my time out on Saturday mornings and some stuff in the week with my local grassroots club. I think it's really important that, that those that aspire to be professional coaches, you've got to start, you've got to start somewhere. You've got to start uh, often as a volunteer and putting your time aside to go and, uh, and help the young players and, and learn your craft basically. So my first 12 years was community-based schemes. Um, my first real breakthrough, I would say, was working for the Football Association. So I was there for nearly four years. Again, that was a full-time role, but that was still community-based coaching, grassroots coaching, um, and doing some mentoring work with local grassroots clubs. So not just going in and working with the kids, it was going in and, and working with the coaches. So sort of more coach education. So that's my first real sample of that. And then... The, the latter 12 years has been when I've started to focus then on academies. So going back to 2010 was my first sort of stint in um, what was then a centre of excellence. So this was just before the elite player performance plan was introduced. It was introduced, I think, the following year or might have been that same year, in fact. But that was Dagenham and Redbridge for two years, just when they got promoted back into the Football League. So really enjoyed it. My first real experience of working with, with kids that, aspire to to have a, a future in the game whether that's professionally or, or just just have a life sort of lifelong love of the game and play intentionally for 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 um their whole sort of childhood into into adulthood that's my first real sort of experience of that was at Southend United following Dagenham for nearly six years initially part-time then full-time that progressed into a full-time role at Arsenal so every position I sort of moved into got me closer to where I ultimately want to be. So I was Arsenal for nearly four years, uh, left there in February of this year. And I'm now at Watford working with, again, foundation phase, which has been primarily the age groups that I've worked with. I've sort of uh, worked in and around the youth development phase a little bit across those 24 years, but I'd say the bulk of it has been working with the little ones, the five to 11s. Um, that's where my main passion is, I, I, I would say. Um, and yeah, and that takes me up to present day. So that's 24 years of, uh, of learning, going through all the qualifications possible. So I've managed to go and get both level four qualifications, a license, advanced youth award, um, and, and spent a lot of time and effort working my way up the ladder to get to where I currently am. So anyone that aspires to be a professional football coach, um, it may not take, take as long as it's taken me, but um, I don't regret one second of my journey because I've learned so much along the way, being from a volunteer now to a, you know, a full-time coach. Yeah, that was going to be a question of mine. Is your passion primarily in the foundation phase? Have you ever tried to coach um, the older ages? Because I had a similar experience to you where I used to volunteer on Saturdays coaching for my local club, um, coaching four to seven-year-olds in their sort of academy, which would then go into the under-eights or under-sevens. And um, I really enjoyed that. And that, that was the, the phase that I enjoyed. And then I got a job at Solio Moores, a placement year at UNA, and I was coaching under 18s, under 23s. And that really put me off coaching, um, that experience. I felt like maybe if I went back into foundation phase, then maybe I'd enjoy it again. But that that real sort of experience coaching that age group really put me off coaching. Yeah. As I say, I would probably go as far as saying 99% of my coaching um, experience has been with foundation phase. So I've spent the odd season here and there working with like 13s, 14s, when I was at Dagenham, part of that role was working with the under-18s a couple of mornings a week, so spending some time with the so first and second-year scholars. I, I think it's really important that you 
you have that adaptability as a coach to go and work with different age groups because it's made me then appreciate where my passion is. Not that I don't enjoy working with the older ones and I, and I work with 16 to 19s during the day within my current role. Um, but it's a very, very different way of coaching the terminology and the language you have to use and, and, and uh, the coaching behaviours can differ from those sort of youth development, professional development phase back into foundation phase. But I think it's important that all coaches have that all-round experience of working with the different age groups because they demand so many different character traits from you and behaviours from you, the way you interact with the players, your session design, the content and the language and terminology that you use. It's important that I think you have that experience and then you can obviously then have that preference where you want to sort of specialise. And I, I would say that my my uh, passion and my specialty is working with the young ones. But as I say, it's important that you have that, that background of, of knowing what it feels like to work with older ones. It, it can only help you when you work back with the ones that you do want to work with sort of more sort of predominantly. Yeah, It's funny because I'm kind of the opposite. Like I think coaching 16, 17 year olds, I find it kind of easier um, mm. because I like to relate to the players a lot, you know, um, and I feel like they're a bit more mature. You can have a laugh with them. Whereas, I also did some coaching back in the day and I found it really difficult to, um, you know, show my authority to the younger kids. Like I didn't really know how to go about it. Um, and yeah, younger, younger kids also maybe a bit more sensitive. I don't want to be doing anything, you know, um, you know, too bad um, in my coaching style. So um, it's, it's really, it's really tricky. It's really tricky. Yeah. I think I'm the same as you though, but because I'm just a massive kid, then it's easier for me to go and yeah. work with the little ones. And, mm. and having, having my own kids, I've got two young daughters, um, one's seven and one's 12. But, but growing up over the last yeah, 10, 12 years and, and, having, and having kids, it's, uh, it's really helped with my coaching. Yeah. So it makes me able to, it allows me to, uh, to really understand how young people think and the things that they enjoy doing and the, the TV shows they enjoy watching, the books they read, the interests they have away from football. So becoming a parent is, is something that has had no end of help to me uh, understand child development, the psychology behind how kids think, the emotions they go through, the, um, the difficulties they face regarding when they make mistakes or have to become independent for any sort of great length of time within a particular task having kids is the best learning curve to, 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 to improving as a coach. Um, but for me as a foundation phase coach, that's probably been my best CPD, regardless of all the qualifications I've done, just, just having kids and understanding how they think for sure. Yeah. And watching kids TV, you've got to watch kids TV as a, <laughs> as a coach to understand yeah. the, um, the way that, that they engage young people and the, and cause getting kids attention and maintaining and retaining their attention is one of the biggest challenges when you work with the little ones, you've got to be so concise with your language. So um, have loads of clarity with your messages because these kids within 30 seconds, they're gone. Mm. They're off. They don't want to be there being lectured to or spoken to for any great length of time. They want to go and play. Um, yeah. That's probably the biggest challenge I, I would say as a foundation face coach. I think those words that you use, like go and play and also enjoy uh, like the most important words, because that's the whole reason why I love coaching foundation phases because uh, my whole like thought was um, try and make these guys fall in love with playing the game. I feel like when I when I think back to my early experiences of football, going to these academies on a Saturday morning with my dad, they were like the best days, honestly, like I, I could ever think of. Um, and if I could try and 
give them that same experience, then that's enough because they're going to go on and carry on playing football for the rest of their life, watching football. Um, and ultimately, football is life. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just think it's an absolute privilege to work with the little ones because we are their first experience, or it is the first experience of, of sport, being active, appreciating um, the, the health and physical benefits of, of being an active young person. And if their first sort of experience is, is us as their coach, it's a massive challenge, but it's a massive privilege at the same time to, to, to try and shape their, their love of the game. And if we can foster a, a real long-term love of the game when we pass them on to the next age group or, or the next phase or wherever they move to next, that's, that's got to fool you with so much pride. You know? And if these kids play football into their teens and there's massive dropout, as we know, when kids hit certain age groups, um, recent research suggests that between 13 to 16 years of age, there's a 76% dropout in young footballers in academies. Mm. So if we sort of scale that back to foundation phase, I think part of our role is to try and bring that drop that dropout rate down and, yeah. and try and, and really work on the retention side of things. And if, if we can do our job within those sort of golden age of learning between sort of five and, and 10, five and 11, hopefully we've got a chance of bringing those dropout rates down when they then move into their teenage years. Mm -hmm. I've seen a lot of, I've seen a lot of pictures on social media of uh, score lines um, and people reacting very negatively about it. Um, so for those not listening, what's the thinking behind the negative kind of reaction to these 20 nil score lines? Is that part of a reason that could lead to this massive dropout in in physical activity and in football? Tell yeah. us more about tell us more about that. Yeah, a scoreline is an outcome, isn't it? It's an outcome of a game, a match. I think part of our role in youth development is to is to really advocate the the learning sort of uh, messages within the process. So if coaches are posting huge, great scorelines or any scorelines, I don't think coaches should be posting scorelines of any nature, be those of great margins or, or narrow losses, draws or wins. The outcome isn't important for kids' football. In my opinion, there are, what, 92 league clubs. Therefore, there are 92 first-team managers. They're the only ones that are, you know, looked at as far upon win, loss, draw, points, tally at the end of the season. They're the only ones where there's that real pressure attached to it. Anyone else, and I include 23's football in that, 23's down, the result is irrelevant. It is irrelevant. Of course, it's important as far as players wanting to, to win and coaches wanting to win, but it isn't the most important thing. And part of my thinking behind that is that when I was at my, one of my former clubs, we had to every Sunday after, after matches, we had to post on our WhatsApp group, um, scoreline, um, top three players and why, any strugglers, team performance in line with the topics that we worked on in that particular week, how the trialists got on. And I got into a habit of putting the scoreline at the bottom because what I wanted coaches to read was the detail. So the performance of those that played well, those that perhaps found it difficult, how the team got on. And then lastly, whether it was subconsciously making me want, me making them want to think that the scoreline was last because it was the least important, that's pretty much why I adopted that way of writing up that report, but then was pretty much told in no uncertain terms that the result needs to go at the top. Yeah. So to do it the other way around. Um, and that just, just for me, makes me think that as far as that's concerned, 
they're prioritizing the result as more important than anything else. They wanted the result to be seen at the top of that particular report. Um, I think a lot of that is ego. I really do. I've got no, no shame in saying that. I think that's coach's ego. Yeah. And that makes me think then, well, why are you involved in football? For what purpose? Are you in it for yourself? Or are you in it purely to develop and help these young people? That's what coaching's about. Coaching's about connecting and communicating and developing relationships and supporting and helping. Um, the result comes far, far later down the line for me. Mm. Just on that point, have you? So you've obviously had experience coaching in different cultures, but I don't mean to put you on the spot, John. But didn't we have a debate where we were talking about the culture differences between foundation football between um, Belgium and England, and you were unaware that the the just to be correct, they've taken out the scores at foundation phase and that and competitions. Is that right, Paul? In in Belgium in particular, do you mean? No, no, no. What about in England? Have they taken out leagues? Um, so in academy football, do you mean? No, no, no. Just in grassroots. So grassroots players do participate in leagues. Right. So okay. they'll, they'll they'll play in leagues. They'll play they'll play for points. They'll play in cup competitions. Um, in academy football, it's very much development based. So okay. most most fixtures in what they call the games program are development fixtures. So there's, there's no points at stake. There's, um, of course, there's there's winners and there's losers, whatever the case may be at the end of the day, but nothing's recorded. Um, yeah. There's no tally up of a league table. Um, and to not wanting to contradict myself in any way, I think that perhaps goes too far the other way. The way. Yeah. And I think there needs to be some, some balance in the middle. So I was chatting with someone recently about there being some more scope for variety within that sort of program. So across a four week month, for instance, maybe one of those weeks could be a little cluster league built up with, with yourselves and, and local clubs where that's London based. So when I was at Arsenal, you're thinking what Spurs, West Ham, Chelsea, those types of clubs. And you come together once a month and you play in a, a league sort of fixture and play for points. And I'd include the under nines in that as well. The importance behind that is that they're getting that variety. They're getting that chance to compete for points. So there's that, that model of having to perform, albeit in a very, very sort of minority-based way of working because the majority of the month is more development-focused. Um, the problem, I think, with it being the other way around is it's far too much result-orientated and there isn't that balance then for development being considered by the coaches. So I think there needs to be some sort of happy balance between and a balance struck between those two formats really to, to get the most out of your development versus winning sort of debate. So going back to your point also, what, what was that? Yeah, the no, cultural difference. Yeah, yeah. I was just uh, I, I forgot what the initial debate was about. Um, I was wondering. I think it was the score lines. I think in Belgium they still, um, you know, they still have score lines and leagues and stuff at a grassroots level. Um, but in terms of like the whole coaching aspect, like it is quite behind like Belgium um, like, compared to the UK. It's like that um, you did your project on um, that the FA introduced. Well, yeah, um, the tri triple P. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we're talking about, yeah, um, I think about the philosophy and things like that. The, the, um, the FA really drills into, especially on my level one and two, that's what they were primarily focusing on. Um, mm. and, and not always like it's all about trying to create that enjoyment in the foundation phase. Whereas John found when we was talking about it, that competition and uh, competing was like really prevalent in Belgium. 
from my experience yes i don't know if it's evolved since because it's been quite a long time but from my experience at the time that's how it was um but yeah we we do copy uh the uk a lot so uh, <laughs> it might be in place now but, but question for yourself then um does your experience allow you to sort of sort of give some feedback as to how that impacted upon the coaching so what was the coaching sort of uh, take on that being uh, competitive with points at stake what impact did that have upon the way they were with with their players I felt personally so I felt like I had a lot of pressure on myself uh, like I put I don't know if it was from myself or from the kind of environment I was in but I was playing I had a really good season and I got selected for the reserves team of uh, of the club I was playing at and uh, I really like my two last years I really didn't enjoy it and I think it's because of you know how intense the the whole, uh, you know, like the point system, like the league, like we can't um, get relegated because we just ha- had got promoted. Like that, that kind of environment really uh, took a hit to my um, to my confidence. I'm a striker as well, so result you needed results. As particularly, I needed to score goals, and I wasn't particularly doing that well. Um, got dropped to the bench a few times, and yeah, it just took a hit, massive hit to my uh, to my confidence. Personally, that's how I experienced it. It was the same for me, really, as well. Like growing up in the UK, it was very competition oriented. I think it's developed within me quite an unhealthy competitor where I'm I compete in everything that I do, even if it's something small, something not even that important. I'm unnecessarily competitive, and it's like, and, and it's actually a detriment sometimes. So I think that's something that's developed within me uh, through that, that those early phases of my football. Yeah, yeah, I'm really similar in that yeah. I'll, I'll play a game of Uno with my kids and I won't want to lose. I know. <laughs> but yeah. if, we, if we almost try and reframe that, the, the positive being that what you're not doing is just letting your kids win in that example. Yeah. Um, and then they probably sort of experience an, an unhealthy sort of experience of, of winning and they'd be winning all the time. Yeah. And this goes back to things like I've spoken to people recently about um, school sports days. Um, and obviously that's not been happening in the last two years, pretty much with the pandemic, et cetera. But um, at my kids' primary school, they're termed as non-competitive sports days. So the kids will do all these weird and wonderful activities and they'll spend 10 minutes doing this, then move on to the next activity. They might do a race at the end, but it's all very much participation. And, um, and that's great. But thinking about their academics, when they're in the classroom, there's going to be one of the kids that's the best mathematician. There's going to be one kid that's the best at geography. So in my opinion, there should be scope for us applauding and having time to, uh, to lavish praise on those that are the most sort of talented as far as um, physical activity, be that running, football or other sports. I think when you call something non-competitive, it takes a lot away from it because kids do need to learn how to win and lose, but need to learn how to win and lose in the right way. Yeah. And they experience that in the classroom with those that struggle with their spellings and those that strive with their spellings. There's a, a hierarchy there to some extent, isn't there? Yeah. So why, why should we take that opportunity away from those that perhaps once or twice a year when there's something to, um, to play for regarding sport within their school, we deny them that opportunity because we make it just participation-based. I think that's a whole new... You could have a whole new podcast or a whole different podcast <laughs> just on that topic. <laughs> I know. It's about learning life skills, isn't it? And yeah. I'm all about the kids in my sessions learning life skills as well as developing as footballers. I think it's really, really important. Yeah. 
football could definitely act as that sort of tenant to be able to facilitate that. Um, I think it was an important point that you brought up about allowing them not to win all the time because they'll create an unhealthy relationship with losing. Um, because ultimately across your life, there's wins and losses across the board. So um, yeah, like you said, it's about developing that healthy relationship with wins and losses. Yeah. And, and, and like you say, that if they're, they're constantly winning, um, I think then undervalues that, that feeling of winning, it becomes an expectation. And the biggest harm and the, the biggest detriment to that experience is then when they first, when they experience their first sense of loss or losing, whatever it might be, um, a game or a match or a fixture, if we've not given them those experiences and that understanding of what that actually feels like, the emotional balance and control isn't going to be there because they won't know how to deal with it. Um, we, have, we have to give them those affordances to learn how to win and lose, albeit in a game of cards with your kids or a board game. I still think it has a massive knock-on effect how they grow up and attach feelings of win and loss to, to any sort of competition. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's learning important life skills, isn't it? 100%. Being a parent must be so stressful. Like I'm realizing, like there's so little things that can affect the way your child develops, the way you're, you know, it, it's crazy. I'm not looking forward to it. <laughs> I'm going to be constantly so much, thinking about so it. So much pressure, it's, particularly because we've done psychology studies, so we kind of know, you know, the, the whole science behind it. So, oh, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be definitely. Have you have you found that process sort of learning as a parent? Yeah, it's. As I say, it's the best CPD you can have as whether you're a teacher or a coach, whatever occupation you do, whether that's in the office. And, and it just it allows you to understand people. Mm. It allows the biggest thing for me is you, you just learn how to become patient. Because if you're not patient as a parent, mother, father, or even as a sibling, if you haven't got patience as a characteristic within your personality, you're going to be losing your head every five minutes. Like living in a house, I, I live with my wife two daughters, uh, got a puppy. Well, he's not a puppy anymore. He's nearly two, but he, he still acts like a puppy. <laughs> <laughs> Have, having a dog is another one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You've got to just learn to let things slide sometimes and you can't. Because I was growing up, I was a bit of a perfectionist and I would, I would always strive to be, you know, I, I represented my school as the school sports captain. I was district champion, middle distance runner. I was the football captain. Um and I was always one that strived to be almost perfect within every other sporting or academic sort of um, venture I went into. As soon as you grow up and become a parent, you, you, have, you can't be like that because, you know, you, you're going to be dealing with tantrums, untidy bedrooms. Um, you're going to be dealing with problems with friends, homework. And yeah. just, you have to learn how to become patient, tolerant, understanding. And these are the links, I think, with qualities of, a, of an ineffective um, football coach or, or sports coach and teacher to learn those, those traits um, but it's hard because there's no, no one's written a, a book that I would say that you can go, go and buy or get out of the library and think right that's everything I need to know about being a dad no one's yeah. written that book yet because I don't think it's ever going to exist you're only going to learn it once you experience it yourself and go through those those initial few years um, yeah so it's a real uh, it's a real roller coaster you've got a lot to look forward to whenever it is you uh you have that experience but you, you, <laughs> it makes you a better person for it for sure i sort of getting my first taster um i sort of got we've just uh got a dog and um yeah just finding to actually look after someone that's not me um it, i'm finding a challenge <laughs> so yeah is it, is it uh, a puppy 
No, no, no. It's my girlfriend's um, old dog from London, but um, it's come to stay with us for two weeks and now got it on a permanent contract. So, uh... <laughs> <laughs> We've got a short term here we go. Yeah. Got on a loan. She's come back full time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> like you say, though, le- learning to become selfless, whether that's looking after a dog or, or looking after little humans, it's, um, yeah. it, it, it makes you uh, understand yourself. Better than any any form of education you could go and do. It's, uh, it's life changing for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So going back to your coaching career and your coaching philosophy, um, I'm interested to actually know. Like I said, on these FA courses, that they talk a lot about philosophy. Um, what is your sort of coaching philosophy as an overall? Yeah. So only in recent sort of the recent sort of six months or so that I've decided to really almost package the way I feel about coaching into um, a smart little sort of way of then describing it. Okay. I always had loads of sort of thoughts and ideas in my head that when someone asked me, I just like waffled at them and it was like trying to sort of pluck out the bits that were relevant. So what I do now is I use um, an acronym of of goal. So G O A L to basically describe how I feel about, about coaching. So the G stands for game related. So in the last, yeah, pretty much 10 years, eight to 10 years, I've, I've veered away from sort of that drill-based coach, that sort of constant practice that lacks that sort of decision-making element to it um, and gone down the route of, of games. And I don't just mean games as far as 77, 8v8 up to 11v11, whatever age group you're working with, but games as far as, players competing against each other so that could be 1v1 it could be a three versus three conditioned game or a skills practice when you're competing against the other team I'd still call that a game um so that's that's what the G stands for I'm a huge advocate of uh of competition in sessions and games uh the G for me should also stand for goals so the acronym being goal but goals itself so where possible having goals in your sessions yeah that's what I found yeah. I really like the little mini target goals. So any sort of passing practice, if uh, if numbers allow it, or or rather if numbers prevent it from being a case of you can always pass to players, I like to have reference points of small goals yeah. um, dotted around various um, parts of the area. And you can work on passing range, different types of technique. And for players' motivation, just seeing a ball hit the back of the net, I even think that makes a massive difference as well. Yeah. Um, so games and goals... The O stands for ownership. So this has really come from me becoming more experienced and and, uh, and going through the different clubs I've worked for that now when I reflect on a session and review the session myself, I'll always look at myself first and particularly after a game and think, what could I have done more of today to make that more successful and experience and positive experience for the kids? So I'll always zoom in on myself first rather than that classic of other players didn't play well today or the opposition were better than us. I'll look at myself first. I think that's really important to zoom in there. But also I think it's important that the kids take some ownership as well of their yeah. learning, um, whether that's within the academy or within the environment, or particularly when they're away from the environment. So uh, in my time, we've spoken a lot about nutrition, about um, multi-sports, so different activities that they do away from the academy, sort of um, experience in academy environments, so owning their own learning. Okay. Um, so I think that's important as well. The, the A stands for athlete-centred or, or to be more specific, child-centred. So what I think of now in my session design, rather than think about what's best for the team, my session design is all based around individuals. 
So I like to work with small groups, real small group training, where possible based upon their, their ILPs, so their individual learning sort of programs, and, and try and tailor the, the content and the design of the sessions to, to suit individuals and put them at the forefront of my thinking, um, as well as treating them like little unique personalities. I don't coach, I don't like to think of myself as coaching teams. I coach 16 different individuals in a group of that, of that many. So when I've heard coaches say that, oh, my team lost today or we lost today, they're, they're not your team. They're not a team. The only team, going back to my previous point, are those 92 league clubs. They're the teams. Yeah. But even then, I still think coaches, like you see the, the great work that Pep Guardiola, Pep Guardiola does for individuals and, and the development he does of individuals is, is insane. And that has a massive then knock-on effect to the, to the um, success of his teams over the last sort of 10, 12 years. But I'm very individual-based in my coaching now. And then uh, finally, the L stands for, for life skills and long-term player development. So I always try and look at what follows. As a 9s and 10s coach, I'll look at the 11s and 12s and spend some time with the 15s and 16s. So I've got the, that knowledge in my head about these boys in six, seven, eight years' time. This is where they're going to be. So I'm thinking long-term always and trying to really sort of uh, advocate that way of thinking to my support staff. It's not just about the here and now, it's about the long-term. Um, and then the life skills that I've mentioned a couple of times, um, I'll always try and, and, and subtly place those smart little life skills in sessions, things like um, gratitude amongst the players. So expressing gratitude to each other, having patience, um, being good communicators, having trust to your teammates. And I think like you said um, earlier, Oliver, football has the ability to teach all those things. But if we can highlight them almost explicitly sometimes in sessions, then we highlight the importance of those to our kids. And that, I think that can have a knock-on effect to the way they are with their school friends, with their siblings, with their parents, with their other friends away from football. Um, and I think that's part of our job to, 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 to try and develop those, those lifelong traits within our players. But it's part of the fun of it as well. It means it's not just about being a football coach where uh, you know, we, we wear a lot of different hats as, as football coaches. We're, we're, we're youth developers. We're people developers as well as player developers, I think. Yeah, 100%. I think for any coaches listening, I mean, you've just provided some very valuable information. I think your ability to reflect, I think that ownership is a very important factor of that whole acronym. Um, something that I found on my level two to be very significant as well, especially for the players. They always said, um, if you can provide the players with some sort of ownership during the session, that that's really important for their development. Um, so I, I, I try and do things like that. Um, how would you try and develop ownership within a session? Yeah, I'm, I'm all about empowerment. So yeah. uh, going, back to the, going back to my own kids, whenever they ask me a question, I'll never give them the answer straight away. Never, regardless of what the question is. I'll always ask them their opinion first and try and prompt the learning out of them. If it's a homework question or... Um, a friend's sort of relationship question. I won't ever give them my opinion first. I'll try and get their information from them, get their opinion and feelings, and then subtly try and sort of drip feed in how I feel, but make them think as if it's coming from them. Going back to sort of the players um, and that sense of empowerment, I think particularly with those that strive in our groups as far as their characters, we've got the extroverts in our group uh, and mavericks, those types of players are always the ones that I'm going to give that um, challenge to go and almost coach 
other players and and support and encourage and give them those leadership responsibilities. That's that's trust. That's empowering. Mm. Um, I also think it can be used in in behavioural management. So going through the Advanced Youth Award back in 2017, one of the biggest take-homes for me was about how to deal with players that misbehave. Um, And going back to zooming out and and looking at myself, the only behaviour we can control in our sessions, of course, as we know, is is our own. We can't Mm. control our kids' behaviours. We can only deal with the way that we respond to it. And again, it's respond rather than react. I think when you react to behaviour, that for me that when I think of the word react, it almost has negative connotations to it. So you react spontaneously and that could be to criticize the player that's misbehaving to exclude them. But we don't know why this player's misbehaving. Mm. We have the part of our job is connecting, finding out that player might've had the worst day at school. They could have had a fallout with one of their best friends. They might have issues at home. So part of our job is to understand personal situations where possible and where we're allowed to, to hopefully then understand why behaviour is as it is sometimes. But an example I can think of a player that was being quite critical in one uh, moment to his teammates and another lad came across to complain about this player. So I called him across and I said, um, we, we spoke briefly about the game on the Sunday. This was on a Monday night training. And I said, I think your leadership qualities are excellent. And I'm going to give you a little 45-minute challenge. That was the length of time left in the session. You've got to try and get around as many players in the group as you can and try and say one nice thing to them and encourage them in in one football-specific way. And he was like nodding his head and he was really, really up for it. And I made reference to the player that he'd been critical of. Um, I said, yeah, start with him. Start with him. He's in your group. Watch him for five or 10 seconds. And then go and give him some positive feedback. That'll make him feel brilliant. And I trust you to go and do that brilliantly. So implicitly, what in that example, of course, he'd been misbehaving. But rather than criticise or even mention the misbehaviour, it was almost go the other way and see how he responded with something, with something that was uh, positive and involved him evoking leadership qualities. And he was excellent at it. And all of a sudden, those critical moments of him being... Um, disparaging of other people's ability and being critical of them, it just completely dissipated. So that's, I think, how you can empower a young person and how you can deal with misbehaviour and turn it and reframe it into something really, really positive. So funny you say that because I had an exact same experience when I was working as a, like an assistant coach. So there was this uh, older, um, so we were, I was coaching uh, four to 12 year olds and the eldest of the group was kind of like misbehaving I wouldn't say bullying the kids, but using his presence and his big size um, to his advantage. And, and it wasn't sticking well with the with the little ones. So the coach called him over uh, and, um, and said, why don't you use your big presence and uh, your physicality in a positive way? Um, and it, that really struck with him. And I would say 10 minutes afterwards, you could see him tie up the little, um, the little one's laces um, so it's exactly the same experience that you described there. And yeah, I can totally relate it. And it's so nice to see that rather than like telling him off, it's like, like you said, reframing, yeah, reframing the situation. And yeah, and he feels good about it as well uh, at the end because he knows he's helping his teammates out. So uh, yeah. it's really cool. I think that's a really, really powerful way of coaching. And that's so good. And that's, that's a coaching football moment, but that's a developing leadership qualities moment, which has a massive impact upon 
and has a massive transferability over to football. Um, I think the the, the book uh, Legacy by, by James Kerr, I always think of that in these types of moments and empowering people. But he says people will rise to the challenge if it's their challenge. And I always remember that quote. And in that example you've given and the one I gave, it was his challenge. I gave him that challenge. So he's thinking he trusts me to go and do this job to the best of my ability. He trusts me to go and show my character in a positive way and show how well I can lead and encourage others and communicate and socialise really, really positively. Um, and that's what empowerment does. And that takes it away from you as the coach and puts that emphasis on the player. And that's how I think youth development coaches need to, need to think. Yeah. You talk about having those introverts and those extroverts. It's sort of like channeling their personality traits into them, their personality traits being something positive rather than it going the negative way. Um, I think you reframing it that way allows them to do that. So it's not always just leadership qualities, but people have other personality traits. And it's about emphasising them traits in something positive. I think that's super important. Yeah. Um, and again, going back to that example, what that player had been doing previously was noticing every um, negative thing about his teammates. Yeah. Whereas the challenge offered and then accepted by the by him and then gone and obviously successfully achieved was he then started noticing all the positive things. Yeah. So his observation skills were obviously improving, his ability to notice positivity and almost neglect and be detracted away from the negative things that he was witnessing and being critical of. So as well as it improving him socially, it probably improved his awareness, his analysis, his observation of his teammates and his understanding of his teammates. Um, and they were really, really key life skills and traits for young people to learn and get better at and develop. 100%. Um, so moving on, like throughout this podcast, you've, you've already mentioned a lot of um, attributes and traits that coaches should develop in order to be successful. But something I've started asking um, all guests is what they feel make a successful and then whatever their career is. So what do you feel make a successful foundation phase coach? Um, so other coaches listening can, can sort of develop those those attributes. Yeah. I mean, of course, you need to be well-versed, knowledgeable in whatever sport it is that you're, you're coaching. So you need to know in this instance, you need to know football. Um, you need to watch football. You need to understand it. Of course, watching 11 v 11 is very different to the formats that I coach and, and, and are involved in. Anything from sort of 5 v 5 up to 7 v 7 is what I'm more involved in as far as game formats. But of course, you need to know the game. You need to understand, I think as a foundation phase coach, how to descale back all those intricacies and complexities of the 11-11 game and package it in a, in a real age-appropriate childlike way to then coach it to sort of six, seven, eight, nine and 10-year-olds that I work with. That's one of the biggest challenges because we can watch t um, football on TV every night of the week and we can hear all the analysis um, and the um, and the way that players, or sorry, the way that pundits talk about football, but often our young players aren't going to understand a lot of the words, the meanings, um, the playing philosophies, the principles of play. So we need to make sure that we package that in in a manner that allows them to understand it. So that for me is that difference between being a secondary school teacher and being a primary school teacher. Some of the things you're teaching might be very similar. Is how you again reframe it and package it. So that's the the, the sporty bit. I think going back to the traits as a coach, I think the biggest two for me, we've spoken about patience. That's massive. Um, and empathy, I would say. Being empathetic is one of the, 
the key attributes of, of, a, of a grassroots coach and an academy coach. And it's understanding why players act in the way they do um, and trying to sort of think how they think. I think that that's one of the key traits that I've learned over time to, to, to have longevity in academy football is to be empathetic to your players and, and really understand why they act in the way they do and why they feel about things the way they do while they have these little emotional outbursts, while they lose control sometimes. Um, whereas previously as a younger coach, I probably would have clamped down on that too early and not understood it, going back to some of our previous points we just discussed. But just, just zooming out and being calmer and being more composed. And, and I think that if we're like that as coaches, and um, for instance, on a, on a Sunday during, um, during games, during matches, I like to sit down. I like to watch the game sat down on a bag of footballs or on the bench, on the bench watching it by the side of the pitch. Whereas previously, I'd been one of those sort of touchline patrollers, moving up and yeah. down, following the ball, gesturing, pointing, talking. I think that can increase anxiety in our players. They become reliant upon the coach. They're always looking across to sort of see what I'm saying. It's not about the coach. It's about the kids. Football's a player's game. It's not a coach's game. So I think even the, the, the subtle body language difference of being sat down, big smiles, positive eye contact, I think that that transfer across to the players makes them feel more composed, less anxious, and more able to express themselves create, creatively. So I've learned that over time. So I'd say patience, empathy, and body language are the three key ones for me. Yeah. You talk about empathy and you talk about being on the touchline. Obviously, a huge initiative in the UK was that... Um, it was around the sort of the dad um, and him barking on the sidelines. Something I always found tricky as a coach is being able to obviously empathise with the players, understand why they might be acting a certain way. So my question is really around, let's say they're having problems at home um, with, with parents or their barking orders. How do you sort of cope with a situation like that? How would you sort of solve that? What, during a game itself? No, no, no. Say if it's like even during, during a session. Um, they're just not them quite themselves and something's going wrong at home like is, is that your place to step in or do you yeah yeah I think it is yeah. um, as, as far as you can only ask so many personal questions that I think you're allowed to within your role ethically yeah um, some players are, are as forthcoming to express themselves about issues that are affecting them some are and I've had some players that will will quite explicitly say yeah Mum and dad are the second I jump in the car after training, they're bombarding me with questions. They're talking, they're critiquing my performance. Um, so some are sort of willing to, sh to share and divulge that information. Others clam up, are very withdrawn. Um, both are situations that I think you can lend um, uh, a caring ear to and lend your support to, whether you have to then um, move that on to, to safeguarding or player liaison or the psychology sort of professionals that work in football clubs now, that might be the case as, as well. Um, it's, a, it's a really tricky one because, you know, our kids spend 90, 99% of their time with mum and dad. They spend that one or 2% with us during football sessions in the week. Um, and there's only so much prying and information that we can, we can get out of our kids that's, that are going to help them as footballers, but hopefully we can then help them as young people as well. Um, as far as like it, it, it being a thing during matches and during training, of course, the last two years has been different because parents aren't obviously 
as active uh, training sessions and games anymore because they're just not allowed to be there uh, currently. But I think when they have been, and I've, I've witnessed coaching from the sidelines or criticism from, from the sidelines, one of the, the most subtle ways of dealing with it, in my opinion and my experience, is moving around to that side of the pitch as a coach and just standing there, not saying anything to the parents, not making any eye contact, just standing on that side. And I think that even you moving across to their side of the pitch can make them think, well, why has he done that? He's probably done that because of us. And that can just temper down the way they're feeling, reduce that emotion. And sometimes it can just be, if it, if it was to carry on, just a brief bit of eye contact and nice and calm, nice and composed with the way you deal with it. Um, whether you have to sort of take that parent to one side or you can deal with it in a group setting if it was more than one. I think, again, going back to the way we deal with our emotions, I'm never going to raise my voice. I'm never going to lose my emotional control with a parent um, because I want to be able to retain my composure. And being like that can often be role modelled by them and they mirror your behaviour. So I think that's the, the, the best way to deal with it in, in sort of a, a training session or, or game environment. It's tough, though. It is, it's a very, very tough one. You, so, so parents can also um, be your biggest ally in the sense uh, in the development of uh, youth football players. So could you kind of talk about the important role they have, uh, you know, in youth footballers and their development? And yeah, yeah, tell us more about it's that. Um, it's being approachable as a as a football professional, and uh, one of my sort of biggest take homes from working at, at Arsenal was um, on at least one of the nights we train three nights a week, obviously games at the weekend. On one of those nights, I liked to uh, empower my support staff to lead the session, plan the session, lead the session. We usually had at least one, if not two, assistants that could work with the kids. And I'd go and get a cup of tea, walk out with some of the parents and just go and stand with them. 10, 15 minutes, just go and stand with the parents and let my support staff go and lead, if not the whole session, at least some of it, while I spend some time just chilling out with the parents, having a chat, perhaps not even talking about football, asking them about, what, what they did over the weekend. Um, if there's other siblings there, talking to them, sort of brothers, younger brothers or older brothers and sisters of the players, getting to know them, finding out what sports they do, how school was, um, but just sort of trying to portray yourself as someone that cares yeah. and someone that, that's um, approachable, willing to put time aside to, to get to know them as people because they play a massive role. They're such a positive influence or for most of, for most part, a positive influence within the academy system because they do so much for their kids, getting them to training on time. Again, working at, at, at Arsenal and at Watford, some parents having to sort of commute in from different counties and long drives, getting kids out of school early in some instances. So they do a brilliant job. And I think it's part of our duty as football staff to go and express that gratitude to them sometimes and spend some time with them. And that's the best way to deal with parents, just to be nice and cool and calm put your time aside, spend time with them. Um, and it, it just earns that trust and it makes them trust you to see you willing to put your time aside for them. That would be my biggest piece of advice, I'd say. Yeah. I think something I found quite impressive with you as a coach is how you, I don't know how to word it, but talking from my experience, I very much cared about how I looked coaching so I felt like if I wasn't directly coaching the kids, then I was doing something wrong 
Or yeah. if I'm not like, like you said, like walking up and down the touchline, looking like I'm doing something, then I'm not doing it. Like the parents are going to be judging me sort of, but I think you is particularly impressive because you're sort of, do you ever explain the reasoning behind what you're doing? So the fact that you're taking a session to just sort of chat with them or your reasoning behind sitting down rather than standing up. Do you ever have some comments? As in parents asking me why I'm doing that? Is that what you mean? Yeah. Or, yeah, I, I just find that impressive. Not not really, because for me, that's still coaching. Yeah, I'm, it, is. it I'm, is. I'm still coaching then, because mm. what I'm not doing is not watching the session. So I'm yeah. doing what I call, I call that spotlighting. Spotlighting for me is when you're dealing with people close range. So that could be talking to parents, but I've never got my eye off the session. Okay. So I'm always looking at the session. Yeah. So that doesn't mean I'm being distracted. It doesn't mean I'm not giving them my full attention. I'm able to now do both. Mm. So I'll make sure even to the intricacy of how I stand when I talk to parents, I'll try and stand so that I can still watch the kids play and I can still watch how the coaches interact with them. Because part of my role is I always want to give the coaches feedback. I want to sort of be aware of how long they spoke to the kids for. Did they overspeak? Did they stop the session too often? And if I'm fully involved with parents and turn my back and just really, really engage with them, I'm going to miss all that. But that's, that's a bit of a skill in itself to be able to um, communicate, interact, engage with people, but not be distracted and, and, and have neglect over, you know, in this instance, the kids coaching session or the kids training session. Um, but for me, that's still coaching. It is 100%. Like, yeah. It's implicit coaching. Yeah. Um, parents have never asked me why I'm stood with them because they're just grateful for the time. And it could be that I've got a parent for five or 10 minutes chewing my ear off about how their kid performed in a game the previous night or previous day, rather. But I'll give them that time. Yeah. I'll give them that time and I will never interrupt them, even down to the eye contact. I always try and keep my mouth closed when someone's talking to me. So that, for me, is a, a non-verbal body language skill of if my mouth's closed, I know, or they know, rather, that they're not going to be interrupted. Yeah. I speak to so many people and their mouth's half open. And I'm thinking any second now you're going to interrupt me and then <laughs> take over the conversation. But even yeah. little things like that, I think can really, really help. Um, yeah. But that just comes over time. And I'm at an age now and coaching for more than half my life. Mm. So you, you, yeah. you learn these skills along the way. Um, I'm not learning them on in a course or doing a qualification. You learn them just by coaching and working with people and kids every day. Um, and that's just how I sort of, how I view it now. One thing I was going to ask you, do you have any tips for parents um, who have young, talented players in the Cat 1, Cat 2 or Cat 3 club? Do you have any tips on on maybe what not to say or what to say in certain moments? Um, tell us more about that. Yeah, I would advocate the use of as many non-football conversations with your son or, do son or daughter as possible. So I always think about when, when's the, the most um, football-type conversations that a dad or a mum will have with their, with their son or daughter. And usually it's in the car drive home after training or after games. Because at least when the kid gets home, they might want to go and sit in their room and they have that distance from mum or dad. They're an active audience, aren't they, in, the, in that car journey home. So that's the real critical moment, I think, when we need to help the parents understand that that hot review of the game, and by hot review, I mean in, in the immediate minutes after the game or session's finished, that's a hot review because you're doing it in the moment. A lot of emotion can overtake and a lot of opinion and almost criticism can overtake. 
So I'm more of a fan of the colder review, which that might then mean the following day um, from a, a Sunday game. I'll always try and give players feedback more so on the Monday night or the Tuesday night training. So we've, we've, we've given ourselves 24, 48 hours to really consider the feedback we're going to give. Yeah. So I would always try and help parents understand that aspect of it. And, and often the following day or even later on that night, their opinion um, and their feedback is often very, very different. You know what it's like when you watch your team play at the weekend on a Saturday and they lose and you hear the phone-ins on the, on the, on the radio. It's just so hot-headed and so instant and so hot review. It can be very, very unhelpful. So I, I would always try and stress the importance of zooming out, cold review, time to reflect, ask them questions, opening your questions about how they thought the game went if you're going to critique the match not what you thought is how they interpreted the game. And again, going back to what the first things we spoke about, try and make it as much process driven as possible, much process driven. So don't talk about the score. Don't talk about any outcome related sort of discussion point. Talk to them about effort. Talk to them about work rate. Talk to them about emotional control. All the things that are going to help them over, long, over the long term produce that, that success as far as outcomes concerned. So as many process-driven conversations as possible and never mention the score and also never compare with other players. I think comparison is a real, real devilment in, in football. Um, and so for parents to compare their son or daughters with others, I think it's very, very unhealthy. So it's, it's, it's tough, but I think stepping back, cold review, no comparison, process over outcome and and, and non-football conversations as well, even after football. Talk about school. Talk about what they're doing at school the next day. Talk about other sports. Take away the stress and importance of football. Um, and I think those, all those sort of little techniques might, might help that relationship and also your relationship with the parent as the coach yourself as well. Start to finish, yeah, that was like unbelievable. I think advice, parents should definitely take that on because it's well cited in the literature as well. I think that process was something I was going to bring up. Um, I think by them doing that in future challenges, they will attribute success. How they how they can succeed is through hard work, empathy, like th things like that, emotional control, because that's how they've been praised before, rather than just on their ability. If they're not good at something straight away, it's not going to be such a detriment to them because previously they've been praised on their ability, you know? Um, so I think that's definitely an important point and something we've um, expressed before in previous podcasts. Yeah. One of the things we spoke in, in psychological terms at Arsenal was this sense, and I'm sure you guys have, have had it referenced, is that red and blue head. Yeah. So that red head being very, very um, aggressive, very hot-headed, showing signs of perhaps um, being frustrated, not dealing with moments of challenge in a positive way and reacting quite negatively right the way down to the blue head, which is very, very relaxed, very composed, very laid back. What we want is almost a purple head. We want a little bit of both with our players because they need to show a little bit of bite. They need to show a little bit of aggression um, and that ability to battle in, in difficult moments. But we want them to be able to deal with it in a controlled, composed way. So to be at either end of that spectrum is probably going to be unhealthy. Um, and I think we can advocate that sort of that way of thinking to our parents as well. We don't want them to be redheads. 
but then we don't want them to offer no help and encouragement. We want them to be somewhere in the middle. So parents that are applauding and giving encouragement and saying, well done, clapping both teams, being positive, that's somewhere in the middle. That's not been overly relaxed or too relaxed. And it's obviously not been hot-headed in any sense either. Um, and that's a great visual for the kids. It's a great visual. And it's very, very simplistic to understand. Um, so sometimes um, with the kids, and again, at Watford, we use this. When there's a moment of frustration or high challenge or high stress, I've even heard the kids in recent sessions say, purple head. So it's implicitly coming from them now. Uh, and that's the, that's the best thing for a coach to stand back and see that and hear that happening and something that you've introduced and it's been, you know, they, they've bought into it, they understand it um, and players are driving it themselves. And that implicit way of, implicit way of, of, uh, of dealing with it from the kids' perspective means it's going to have longevity and they're not relying upon you as a coach trying to drive it. It's coming from them. Um, yeah, another little sort of a visual that is a, a benefit, I think, when you're dealing with emotional control. 100%. Yeah, go on, John. Yeah, I was going to say, so I was really curious. Um, so you mentioned that like players should have that little bite in, in, in them, in their personality. So going through the selection procedures, um, not, obviously not every young footballer will make it to the, the highest level. How do you go about that? How do you go about selecting the players to go to the next stage? As far as uh, retention, do you mean? Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I mean... If I go back to, to uh, my time at Arsenal, we had four pillars and it's really similar to the, uh, the FA's long-term player development model, which was what technical, tactical, uh, physical and psychological slash uh, social. This was um, packaged in a slightly different way, but it was all about players showing um, attributes within the four pillars, which were um, most effective mover or most efficient mover effective team player, lifelong learner, and champion mentality. So across those four areas, which link in again to the FA's model, we're looking for players that perhaps show a, a super strength in one or more of those areas. If it's not a real clear evident super strength, have they got potential to show a super strength in that over time? So we talk about potential versus performance. We talk about um, inconsistent performance versus consistent performance, high potential, moderate potential, low potential. So we draw up during these player audit meetings when we discuss all the players at length, we'd show clips of the kids, we'd have recruitment staff involved, all the age group coaches, head of coaching, academy manager, and we'd categorise the players into these four sections. So high performance, or sorry, in, uh, consistent performance, high potential. So those are your gold players all the way down to moderate to low potential and inconsistent performance. So again, it can be quite subjective as far as it's based upon what the eye sees a little bit. Um, but we're looking for the players to try and show traits in one or more of those four corners or those four pillars. And they're the areas that, that we look at and are at the forefront of our thinking when it comes to retention. So you may have a little dot who's an August born kid, little tiny fella, um, struggles physically, but has got unbelievable ability on the ball, um, unbelievable football actions with his technical execution. He would be one that's got high potential, but perhaps inconsistent performance. So they're the ones that I think you, you are, and I love those players, those sort of July, August born Q4 players yeah. that have to find other ways to, to perform. 
And I've seen loads of those in my time in academy football. And I'd always, always try and pick those players up to, to other staff. So just watch them. Watch them in two or three years' time when they do hit a growth spurt. They're going to have all these wonderful ways of, of solving problems on the pitch mm. because they have never been able to be reliant upon physicality. Yeah. So, yeah, I think retention is about identifying super strengths. It's about seeing um, what a player's ceiling is, so their potential, what their floor is, as in what they look like right now. And hopefully that is the biggest distance possible. So their floor and their ceiling are very, very far apart. So they've got a lot of potential and a lot of progression over those formative years. Um, and again, it's just taking a chance on the kids. Me personally, I don't think players should be released in the foundation phase. Mm. I think if you have a player under eight, you offer a contract to, and they register under nines, it might take them a year, 18 months to settle in. I always call that under nines year, settling in year, because they're going from two sessions a week in a game to three sessions a week or someone's four sessions a week in a game. And it's much, much more intense. And there's more expectation because they're now a registered player. So for, for, for staff to, to cast doubts over players in their under nine season, I think you've got to give them time. So retention for me is really important in the foundation phase. And players should be starting to be judged a little bit more when they start to enter the youth development phase, go 11 to 11, um, because that's the real game then, isn't it? They've gone through the foundation phase. They're playing the real game. Um, but yeah, there's a, there's some subjectivity over it, but I think I look for athleticism. I look for how the players manage the ball under pressure, how the, how the players manage the ball to turn the game forwards. They're all the traits of, of, uh, of Arsenal players and Watford players. And in, in my experience, when I was back at Southend, even then as well, they're the things you're looking for in, a, in young players to, to hopefully retain them from year to year. In terms of the actual selection periods uh, and the meetings, um, a lot of my work has been about um, specifically the 16s, um, so when they get their scholars and also the professional contracts. Um, and I've looked into a lot of negative transition factors as well as positive transition factors um, and how clubs can really facilitate that. Um, I'm just interested, um, obviously, at that point in their life, it is so, um, it could be such a detriment if they haven't got a wider identity and, and things like that, things to fall back on. Um, but obviously, your experience is within the foundation phase. How do you sort of handle these selection periods? How are players released in, in the foundation phase? Yeah. So when I first started in academy football, I don't think there was as much um, humane thought processes behind a release night or a release process, even to the extent um, at, at former clubs of mine when players have been released and there's been no consideration over um, even the way they ex exit the building, for example, something as simplistic as that. Yeah. And players having to walk past other players that are waiting for their meeting, almost like a parents' evening sort of night, walk yeah. past other players, walk past other parents. And I've seen that. And that's so damaging. It is. That's so damaging all the way to how it's been in my more recent experience, which is much, much improved. The retain-release process at Arsenal is excellent. Okay. Very, very, very well put together. Um, very, very educational for the parents. Very, very early in the season, these messages are put across to them. Um, early workshops, early education as far as how we communicate those sort of information points to the parents. Um, we take away the emotion. So, for example if we highlight a player is one to be released, the parents know that when they get an email within a particular week um, expressing um, the need to organise a meeting, 
that meeting is a release meeting. So they know that. They know yeah. that, that email relates to that. That is what's going to happen. So if any emotion is going to come out, it will come out then. They'll be at home. They might be at home with, with their son, for example. They might be at school, whatever the case may be. They can deal with the emotion there rather than have to hear it from us within the academy building. And there have been lots of other people present. We try and take that away. Yeah. Um, and even then to go into the, the, the attention to detail is when they have that meeting with us or had that meeting with us, it was on a non-training night. It was during the day. There was no other parents uh, there sort of for training. Um, so if it was an emotive meeting, you could still have it. You'd hope that emotion had been sort of dissipated across those few days between them getting that email and having the meeting with us. But there's no danger of other parents hearing it, seeing it, being aware of it. Um, and then a lot of care and understanding, a lot of empathy, a lot of listening. Um, and of course, a lot of aftercare once the process has gone through and the paperwork's been signed. So the, the guys at Arsenal and at Watford keep in regular contact with the released players up to a year afterwards, help them organise trials at other clubs, give them player references, devise and create player CVs with all the information that, that shows them to be an able footballer, but perhaps not quite the right fit for yourself anymore. Um, but we do everything we can to make that process smooth, the exit route a positive one, um, compared to how it was, say, 10, 12 years ago, it's completely the opposite end of the spectrum now. Um, and it's a much more humane process that understands the disappointment and that feeling of reject, yeah. um, but takes away where possible the emotion. Um, and that's that's primarily done away from, from, from the academy sort of environment. And that allows more empathetic conversations and understanding conversations to happen when they do come into those meetings. But yeah, it's... Um, it's not a nice part of the job having to release young players, but at times it has to be a necessity because it, often the re release is not just the best for the club, it's the best for the player. 100%. Yeah. I think in terms of that aftercare, um, yeah, I, I, I've spoken with pre other clubs and I just feel like sometimes the player can have resentment towards the club and not even attend those meetings. So it, it's on both parties sort of. Um, but I feel like because they've got to go back to the club, it's quite um, still a damaging experience for them. Maybe if uh, external sort of, I don't know, sports psychologist or something like that had those meetings with them, they'd be more willing to go to sort of those things. That's what I spoke about with another sports psychologist at a club as a potential way for them to even improve that more humane process, you know? Yeah, I think having those people present in the meetings really, really helps. Having um, player liaison um, sort of uh, colleagues in the room with you, having your lead face coach, yeah. your head of coaching is available and has, has opinions to, to give and, and, uh, and it, their presence is worthwhile. Of course, you as the age group coach, having different ears and voices to help that parent in that moment and having four or five people giving that person or that parent that time, they can reflect upon that. When, when it's all when the dust assessment and think, right, all those people within that hour and a half meeting were there to help me and help my son. Yeah. Um, and whether they don't, they might not feel it right then and there, but over time when they review it and reflect upon it, they'll see that the aftercare is there. Yeah. Um, and the decision was, was, was made within their best interests, as I said, not just for the club's benefit. I've known many, many a player being released from a club that signed elsewhere. And I'm now obviously been having coached in academies for 12 years. It's almost like the first 
what I call cycle of players. So players that I worked with when they were six, seven, eight are now playing first team football. Mm. And that's a wonderful sort of 10 or 12 years sort of like um academy lifespan, if you like, to sort of see the whole full circle of it. Um, I had parents contact me throughout the season, throughout the year that had been released, that are now striving elsewhere. And it was quite clearly the best decision because they've gone and strived elsewhere, another club, become more resilient, had to deal with rejection, had to deal with disappointment um, and been the better for it. Whereas the ones that it's a smooth road and it's plain sailing, the minute they get a difficult moment, perhaps in their late teens, if they've not experienced it when they're younger, how are they going to know how to deal with it? Yeah. So dealing with rejection when you're younger hurts at the time, but it doesn't help you as you get older because you know how to deal with it and you, 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 you become stronger for it, for sure. 100%. Everything happens for a reason. That's what we always say. <laughs> it does but, it does. Yeah. It does. I, I, I reflect upon a um, little story about a goalkeeper at South End. So he was an under nine. He went right through to an under 16, being the only goalkeeper in that group. So he played every week, played every minute of every game, was the only goalkeeper in training. Of course, obviously, there were other goalkeepers in other age groups, but within his age group, he was the only goalkeeper. So he got all the attention. Of course, got criticised from time to time, but got all the plaudits because there's no one to share it with. In his under 16 year, the club signed a second goalkeeper. So now, 11 v 11, he's having to share minutes, mm. watch from the sidelines, see someone else get plaudits and positive feedback. Didn't know how to deal with it. Couldn't deal with it. He, and then the outcome was, in this story, he didn't get offered his scholar. The other goalkeeper did. So that was a massive, shows you. massive learning mm. curve for me to see that develop over the two or three years leading up to it. And to think if he'd had that competition at an earlier age, and albeit it perhaps it just didn't work out that way, but if he'd had that chance to, to compete with someone, share time with someone, learn from someone else, have to compete for minutes and for performance sort of uh, feedback, would he have been offered his scholar? Because he was more used to it. So competition for the kids is important. Um, and those speed bumps in the road are even more important to learn how to deal with those difficult, challenging, stressful moments. Yeah. Previously, you mentioned, um, I wanted to ask this a second ago, where you said that um, obviously you coach in the foundation phase. Ha have you got any stories of players going on to play in the professional game? Have you got any names that you can sort of share with us that have gone <laughs> on to play? <laughs> wow. Cheeky question. Yeah, yeah very cheeky. I mean, <laughs> they probably wouldn't be names that, and I'm, I'm always fearful of giving of giving yeah. away names, but there are there are, there are there are names of players when I was at Southend that are un, that were under nines that have represented their country, um, that have gone on to to sign for um, world recognised Premier League football clubs. Okay. Um, there are an age now the players that I'm particularly thinking of that are in and around the 18s, 23s. So then they're on the, the cusp of perhaps getting into first-team football. Yeah. But I've seen players from those age groups go for huge amounts of money, um, had to have their family relocated. Um, okay. Yeah. So without giving away actual names, yeah. cause I, I, I'd be fearful of doing that. I wouldn't want to do that. I've, right. I've seen players progress um, to national football, 23s football, and move from a Category 3 club to, to some of the biggest Category 1 clubs 
um, that are world renowned um, for big money and haven't had life changing experiences by their whole family having to sort of be moved up there with them. Yeah, um, yeah it's a real eye opener. It really is. What is that like for you? What do you feel when you sort of see that happen? Well, the one player I'm, I'm thinking of that moved from, from Southend to this huge football club that I'm referencing, um, my first memory of working with him was as an under 10 at a tour in Germany. In my first week of working at Southend, I was asked to go on a tour to Germany. Um, there are many other stories with that tour that I perhaps won't go into. <laughs> um, uh, but this particular player was um, a winger at the time, got named player of the tournament in a, in a, in a tournament full of, what, 200 players with players from all over Europe. Um, and he ended up being sold to this particular club as a centre-half. Yeah, it's crazy how that works. I, I find that <laughs> so interesting. Like, obviously with Trent, he was a centre-mid and now he's a right-back and he's the best right-back in the world. Um, and how he uses his attributes to be probably the best creator on the pitch at Liverpool. Um, it's so interesting how coaches or managers can really see how they could use their attributes, but in a different position. I find that super, super impressive. Yeah. And it's part of our job as foundation phase coaches to make sure that the players have a full round holistic experience mm. of playing in those different positions. Yeah. So, of course, I th- and I always think when I watch the kids train that some show more attacking traits that others some show more defensive qualities than others some enjoy playing as creators um so we have to give them the opportunity to excel in their preferred positions but of course you've got to move them around we have strikers or those that prefer playing up front playing as center backs those that are tricky wingers playing in center mid you've got to give them that all-round experience because as you've said in your example and in mine just because a player is a winger when they're nine or ten yeah. When they get on the cusp of first team football or 23s football, they might be playing in a completely different position and have a very, very different skill set. Mm. Um, and part of our duty is to expose them to those difficulties and those, those range of positions in their formative years. Um, really, really important that the kids don't get pigeonholed. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Very, very important point. Yeah, 100%. Previously, we talked about um, sports psychology and I was going to move on to that earlier, but we'll move on to it now. Have you ever had any encounters with a sports psychologist during your career as a coach? And how have they been? Yeah, so the, 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 the most recent examples would be at the category one and two clubs that I've worked at in the last sort of five or six years um, when you've got loads more full-time staff that are doing these multidisciplinary type of, of jobs like sports psychologists, um, safeguarding, player liaison, player well-being, welfare. Um, yeah, as much as them helping the players, and I've, I've been involved in meetings with psychologists helping players with confidence, self-esteem, um, growth mindset, I've utilised them myself as a member of staff when I've sort of found difficulties at work and I felt pressure. Most notably, going back to what we spoke about, retain and release, the clubs I've worked at, in the lead up to retain and release, we spend a lot of time ourselves as football staff with those psychologists um, and they're very, very helpful. All, the, all the, the people that I've worked alongside within those roles are always great listeners. Yeah. Great, uh, they show great empathy, great understanding, always give you really, really good advice, but advice that makes you think, I sort of already knew that. Um, but they express themselves yeah. in a very simple way and, and using a lot of common sense. And it's that zooming out, again, that these guys give you that reference point for. 
But yeah, my, my biggest take home would be the sports psychologists as far as how they help us to help the kids and how they help us personally. Because, um, you know, when you're working at Cat 1 and Cat 2 football clubs, that there is a lot of pressure. You do feel a lot of expectation on yourself and there are um, external pressures from senior management, from parents, and the kids demand a lot from us as well, of course. So having those guys available to us, to listen to us, and sometimes just vent towards if we've had a difficult time um, for whatever reason, um, they're a really, really valuable asset to, a, to an academy sort of um, performance, a multidisciplinary team for sure. Yeah, it's exactly. really encouraging. That's really encouraging to hear because obviously we're aspiring sports psychologists. So, uh, and we would love to work in like a, you know, cat one, cat two clubs and, uh, and support the staff. Um, that's one point that's really interesting. We're going to ask you anyways, but sports psychologists isn't only about helping the, play- the athletes themselves and the players, but also it- they can be helpful towards, um, you know, the coaches, like you said. So, uh, it's a, it's a really big misconception, but, uh, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that. Yeah. So, when I moved from Southend to Arsenal, from a Cat 3 to a Cat 1 club, it took me, it took me some time to really adjust. And I've, I've, read, I've since read about things like imposter syndrome. Yeah. Mm. But I, I felt in my early time at Arsenal, I, I felt that. I felt like an imposter a little bit. I didn't feel as if I warranted that move and I warranted being there because I was working in an office with, with ex, ex-Arsenal first team, that obviously within the, the coaching structure other coaches that had worked for, for top cap one Premier League clubs that have been at Arsenal for five or six years. Um, and it was hard. And I felt very overwhelmed. I felt very anxious um, trying to sort of make myself known. And even before I started doing the job itself is just becoming part of that group of people mm. and getting to know them and them getting to know me. And I had some really, really good conversations with the sports psychologist who, who, put my mind at ease and said, you're here for a reason. You've been chosen through the interview process. You deserve it. Um, you'll learn. And, and he put a real positive sort of reframing element to it. And, and it was great. And it really, really helped me. And without that sort of, without those conversations, and if that particular role hadn't been fulfilled within the football club, I would have felt quite alone, I think, at that time and, and felt as if, Again, that sort of feeling of, of being an imposter might sort of go into sort of the more mid and long term. And so to have people like that to help me put my mind at rest and, and to say you're here through for, for knowledge and experience and you deserve to be here, um, it makes you feel valued and it makes you feel part of, of, of being there um, because you warrant it, not just because it could just be by chance, which is what I felt, I think, at times when I, when I first started there. Yeah. I think even for like me and John, we share the same thing. We're, we're, we're sports psychologists. Um, I feel for me, when I turned up to Loughborough University from Coventry, doing four years at Coventry, I had that sort of imposter syndrome, like, am I going to be able to handle myself in this environment? And I think having someone like John come with me from, from the same uni and him being a psychologist, he sort of gave me those reminders that we're here for a reason and we've proven that we can perform at that level. Um, so, yeah, no. Nah. Thank you, John. <laughs> <laughs> Nor is it. <laughs> I just think having experienced that myself, that when I'm now um, more established in a football club and new staff, you know, enrol and start at the football club, I can almost, again, go back to empathy and understanding. 
can almost feel how they'll how they are feeling mm, themselves and you yeah. can give them that time albeit i'm not a sports psychologist i'm a football coach but i think having an understanding of sports psychology is a necessity for any sports coach 100%. and in that example it can help someone else even though that's not my job role i've had it myself um and someone helping me so i can i know what it feels like to then be able to help others um, go through the same experience and have the same sort of help and support is really really valuable i think mm-hmm. for sure yeah for sure in terms of um just moving on in terms of your future career aspirations um obviously um earlier in the podcast you said you've sort of reached the pinnacle what you wanted to achieve um, but moving forward what are your future ambitions and aspirations as a coach yeah so i've gone from what volunteer coach to football in the community coach, part-time, um, full-time community coach, part-time academy coach, full-time academy coach, full-time uh, phase lead coach. The next step for me is to uh, is to work in coach education, is to be a head of coaching. So is to is to work in a role that helps the staff and helps the coaches to then indirectly help the players. So I still want to be in a role that I'm able to take sessions and, and actively help the young players learn and develop and have that um, that sort of a, that way of working still with groups. But I'm a I'm in a sort of frame of mind now and a way of thinking that I want to step back. I want to watch the coaches. I want to help them develop, support them, um, give them feedback, help them through their qualifications and their courses for the benefit, of course, then of the players, but in a more indirect way. And I think that's a logical progression for any football coach. Um, others may be to get into senior management, academy management, first team football, playing for points on Saturdays, but that's never been my aspiration. Yeah. I've never never been results driven, um, very much been development driven. And so a head of coaching role is one of the biggest development roles you can do in a football club because it's all about working with people. Mm. we're wishing you all the best for it <laughs> but, um, we, we also saw that uh, you do content creation for football DNA yeah. um, and like you said at the start like you uh, enjoy writing children's books, picture books tell us more about that, tell us more about those projects, are, are those kind of important projects to you to kind of like disconnect from the from football, I know you're, you're making football content but it's a different yeah. type of um, role I'd say like you said yeah, so, so Football DNA has been brilliant in the last couple of months. So I've been writing some articles for, for the website, which have gone obviously onto the social media sort of uh, platforms. Really enjoy that because that's a chance to sit down. Um, and I'm always one to try and reflect upon my experiences. And I think there's no better way to reflect upon your experiences than to put it down in words. So put it in, and I've done articles on creativity in young players. The most recent one that's gone up is around storytelling and using analogies and anecdotes and metaphors in, in coaching roles. That's the one that went up this week. Um, we did a webinar last weekend on um, how to create and deliver an effective uh, match day performance as a coach. So that's going to go in as an article to back up the webinar that we did recently. It's, just, it's, a, it's a different way of working in football, but it's, um, it's been really, really enjoyable. Enjoyed doing the webinars, enjoyed writing the articles. We've done some sort of filmed, recorded sessions recently. And that's great for the kids to watch themselves back and give them a little bit of exposure. So that's been a really nice sort of um, addition to the way that I'm working. And then going into my story writing, I've written two children's books in the last uh, 12 months, near enough. I wrote six in the first lockdown 
of which two okay. I've released. Okay. Um, and it's been a really, really enjoyable process. I've, I've gone through a diploma in, in creative story writing for children through an online training provider, oh. passed that with a distinction, and then coincided that with, with writing these stories. And um, yeah, I've it's given me a real chance to, like you say, disconnect from football. I've got a, I've got a brain that I almost feels got got too much in it at times. Yeah, sounds and, like and, it. <laughs> yeah, and to, to get those things written down, um, yeah. it's been brilliant. And um, all my stories, they're they're rhyming picture stories. They're all about little quirky animal characters that go through mm-hmm. difficult moments and have um, an epiphany at the end. And so there's a life learning lesson to to evaluate at the end of my stories. And the kids in the academies that I've worked at have really, really sort of bought into them because there's definitely parallels to facing fear and, and feeling that you're not being accepted, which are what my stories are about, my first two anyway, to how young people have to sort of live their young lives in football and have that pressure and expectation on them as young, as young academy players. Um, but it's just a nice little side venture as well. And it's, I don't know if you guys have ever written a research paper or have aspirations to write a book. It's, it's one of the most brilliant feelings to hold your own book in your hands and have yeah, it yeah. all bound and have um, it all illustrated on glossy, nice paper and, and read a story to your kids. It's, um, it's been amazing. It's been a really nice sort of a journey. And I've, I've got plans to release my third book in January and then hopefully two more next year. So um, the plan would be to release, what, yeah, five or six books over the course of two years um, yeah. to go on my kids' shelves in their, in their bedrooms. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I love that. In terms of the football DNA, I'm definitely going to forward that to um, a couple of the coaches on my level two course because I feel like it could be very useful for them. They're still in the coaching game. So right. I'll definitely forward that on for sure. Yeah, um, it's, it's a fantastic website. You've got yeah. um, you've got thousands of sessions on there right across uh, from goalkeepers to outfield to curriculums for foundation phase, youth development phase, articles on nutrition, sports psychology, coaches forums, discussing various topics um it's a it's a really valuable tool and I, i've learned a lot just through being sort of part of it so for grassroots coaches and academy coaches to sign up and become a member you're going to get you're going to get fantastic content and uh and, and learn a lot yeah 100%. um but in terms of all the questions we had for you they were all the questions but we obviously asked our um social media followers if they've got any questions for you and this is just a segment where me and John reel them off one for one and just get your insight into their questions. Yeah, go for it. So the first one is, who is a football coach that you look up to? It it doesn't even have to be a known one um, in in case you know any foundation phase coaches that maybe are well less known. Yeah, so I think my my biggest sort of um, role model in foundation phase coaching is probably Pete Sturgis who's the, the national lead, FA national lead for Foundation Phase. So I first met Pete back in 2007 when I was working for the Football Association. He was one of the tutors and one of the uh, the forerunners of what was then the um, the new FA Youth Award Module 1, which was based around developing the environment. Um, fantastic person. Um, he's all about the Foundation Phase. He's, he's all about um, individual development, He's all about the process. He's all about learning life skills in, in football programs. And he's one that I, I really, really look up to. And I've had the, the good fortune of, of working alongside and, 
and um, and being tutored by on, on various courses and still someone that I keep in touch with um, where possible throughout each season in, in the academy sort of uh, um, environments as well. He's come and done some 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 CPD at the clubs I've worked with. And um, yeah, I'd say he's one that I, I really look up to who, who thinks in the same way that I do. Perfect. So the second question was, what advice would you give a young coach who wants to make it at the top level? Expect there to be many more rejections than successes. So I remember mm. when I was, what, 18, 19, into my early 20s, so going through my degree and having done my level two and a few years before going through my UA for B, that was in an age when you'd have to write letters to football clubs. It wasn't a case of you could write emails or contact them sort of electronically. It was all, all about writing letters. And I used to bombard football clubs with letters saying, I'd, I'd come and volunteer for you. And are there any part-time jobs around? This sort of thing. And, and put my CV in. Of course, my CV then didn't look anything like it does now. Yeah, um, yeah. can imagine. <laughs> I either got no res- response most of the time or I always remember opening a letter that had the football club stamp on it. I think, right, here's a reply from the football club. And I'd always look at the first line. And if it had the word unfortunately in it, I wouldn't read the rest of it. Mm. I'll probably go back to it later in the day and have a problem. <laughs> yeah. But in that moment, I'd know that it wasn't going to happen. Um, and even going into full-time football, uh, and sort of part-time football and full-time football, the amount of jobs I've applied for and been rejected for, whether that's at um, application stage or interview stage, is way, way, way more than the ones I've actually ended up gone and obviously fulfilling. Mm. So my my one piece of advice would be to never give up, keep going, develop a very, very thick skin, don't take criticism personally, um, and just if you have a dream and an aspiration, keep going until you until you arrive at it. And I, I'm still in that position now myself. I'm still trying to strive to get my next role full-time and uh, and end up doing the job that I'm, I want to be doing for the next 15, 20 years and to see me through to the end of, of my football time, if you like. Um, so for a young coach to, to go through that pathway from the start, yeah, expect there to be more disappointments than successes. But when you get the successes, celebrate them. Sure. Yeah. That's some great advice there. Um, in terms of the other questions, um, I feel like you've answered them throughout the podcast anyway. So, yeah, they were all the questions we had for you. Um, thanks so much for coming on. It's been such an information-packed podcast, a great chat. Um, I've really enjoyed it. Um, normally during this segment, we give you a chance to shout out anything that you've got going on. But all your social media, Football DNA, um, if you've got any links to your books, um, we'll definitely put them in the description of the YouTube video. Um, so if you've got anything else to shout out, here's your chance. Well, that would be great because uh, to sell a few more books would always be something that's, um, that's, that's very, very well received. And uh, to get some new buyers to, uh, to then sort of um, have more people to, uh, to, to show that I'm going to be bringing out more books too and have a bit more of an audience is always going to be really, really appreciated. Um, Obviously, the football DNA stuff is, like we said just now, is, is very active for me at the moment. So to get more people reading my articles, to get more um, exposure regarding um, people looking at film sessions that are going to be coming out over the next few weeks and months. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say those are the, the, the two things to, to look out for. Um, I always try and post content that I hope a couple of people find interesting um, and helpful. Um, I've got 
as we've been discussing, a, a very, very vast and extensive grassroots background. So part of the way I think now is I, I really want to help. I just want to help. Um, and most of my help is always aimed towards those in the grassroots game because a lot of those are volunteers, give up their time, um, have at least one other full-time job, if not two or three other jobs that they do, um, and put their time aside to go and help and develop young people. So as a more experienced older coach that I'm in, sort of that I am now, I'd say to help younger aspiring coaches is, is one of my main aims. Um, and that's that's part of the way I want to want to be sort of thought of. Hundred percent, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you could please share this with your friends or someone you feel will benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe. Comment down below any questions or you guess you'd like us to get on in the future. Other than that, thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next one.